Jackie. Come on. No sniffing. You're working. Straight on, Jackie. Good girl. Right. Now, today I'm heading west out of the village to the outer perimeters. And I'm going to be hopefully chatting to Adam Clark. Morning. Some walkers just gone past with their rucksacks. And we are going to be talking all things Gurkhas because Adam is today known best in the village as an arborist. He's a tree surgeon. But his great love when he was a child was both the military and indeed then Nepal because he went on to university where he was an officer cadet and went on an excursion to the base camp of Everest. And that was his first love of Nepal. And that was his first time he actually met Gurkhas, retired Gurkhas who'd been in the military forces and was very touched by it. And I believe the story goes that after university, he then applied and got into the army. In fact, I think it's Sandhurst. So we're going to find out all about that in a minute. Gosh, I think this is the house. Adam? Hello? Ah, oh, there he is. There he is. Hi, Adam. Yeah, I'll just get Jackie off a harness and we'll be in. Okay, thanks. Thank you for talking to us today, Adam. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming. And I would just like to say, Adam, this is, a, this is me admitting to a frailty. I wasn't 100% sure where Nepal was. And on my globe, I had a look and it literally nestles, doesn't it, between China and India? It does, yes. On the Himalayan spine between China and India, or Tibet and India. And it is a tiny little country. It's a third world country. It's very poor and it's a country of extremes so on the Indian border you've got what's called the Terai which is very flat nobody really thinks of Nepal as being flat but it's it's quite jungly and hot and there are tigers and elephants and crocodiles and then you have the areas where we recruit Gurkhas from traditionally which are the foothills of the Himalayas and those are dominated by rice paddies but they're terraces in the sides of these unbelievably steep hills with big rivers in the valleys. And the home um, of Mount Everest. And then, yeah, go further um, towards Tibet and you've got the, the high Himalayas and you've got, I can't remember how many of the 8,000 metre peaks are actually within Nepal itself and it's just stunning. So wherever you are in Nepal, you can usually on a good day, see a snow-capped Himalayan mountain, which is uh, amazing, um, and and it's uh, it, it that the terrain has played a big part in shaping the the guys that we recruit into the army. It's a tough landscape, and it breeds tough people. From the very start, the British army recognised this. Because we'll we'll talk about your your entry to Sandhurst and uh, your work with the regiment, but just going back, I think it might be interesting because. It was fascinating for me before I came to meet you today to, to do a little bit of reading up about the history of how the Gurkhas have become part of the military regiments. Because originally, going back 200 years ago, the relationship we have with Nepal wasn't always the happiest one, was it? No, you're quite right. In those days, the British East India Company was occupying large parts of India and they had encampments that were very close to Nepal or what is now Nepal at the time it wasn't really the country that it is now but the Gurkhas uh, the name comes from a, a village in Nepal called Gorkha and these these very fierce martial race really they 
saw an opportunity to raid some of the British East India's camp, uh, company's camps. And th- they were a thorn in the side, really. They kept conducting these raids to the extent that the British East India Company said, right, enough's enough. And they set up an expedition to go into Nepal and teach them a good lesson. But it didn't quite go like that. <laughs> it was a, There were various raids on, on the column going into Nepal and battles were inconclusive. So neither side really won. And both sides left with a very deep mutual respect for, for the other side. And that ended up with an agreement being signed between the British and the Nepali, I would say governments, but, and they've allowed us, there's been this agreement, they've allowed us to recruit a certain number of Gurkhas into the British army each year. And it's a strong relationship that was, as I say, built on this initial mutual respect, which I and think also, is very special. Reading, reading up on the people of Nepal, but particularly, as you said, the, the group that are recruited into the regiment, I hear these words all the time, respect, fierce, fair. They seem to be ferocious in their attitude to battle, but seem to also have this extraordinary integrity. Yes, certainly. This part of the thing that attracted me to joining the Gurkhas was there's a certain, I don't know what the right word is, a bit of an aura. They've built up a reputation of, as you say, fierceness, and uh, that, that precedes them in, in many instances. But their motto is better to die than to live a coward. And that, I think, sums up very much the attitude of the Gurkhas and the regiments. So there is this deep, deep honour and I mean, it's it's very sad actually. They, it's so strong in the in the Nepali culture this honour, and a lot of the recruits who try to get into the British Army, and and there are huge numbers of, uh, uh, competing for a very small number of places. So when I was in Nepal um, helping with the recruiting, we had just over two hundred places available, and we had over sixteen thousand really good applicants who had passed all of the initial tests for those 230 places. Um, so, you, you know, you're turning away recruits who have put all of their effort for the last year or maybe two years into being selected. And for whatever reason, you have to, you have to thin it down to this small number. So the guys that you're turning away, quite often this, this feeling of honour, and they find it very hard to go back to their families having failed in the recruitment. And it, it was absolutely heartbreaking, actually. It was hard, hard to do, a very tough job. But, but yes, you're right. They're very, very honourable people, and that shines through in everything right, they do. Everything you're saying mm. is just, and everything you read does, does seem to, to, as you said, I think the word aura is absolutely right. But part of their aura, though, before we go into your Sandhurst and beyond, is they do like their food. They do. They, yes, and particular food, I, I should say. They like spicy food, very spicy food. And, and any meal that you eat with a Gurkha or, you know, most Nepalis, there not only will be a very spicy dish, but also there'll be a bowl of raw chilies and a bowl of salt on the table and they'll quite happily munch through these raw chilies which are not for the faint-hearted and I made the mistake of <laughs> trying them but yeah they have this incredible love for hot spicy food and and cooking with 
fresh meat, they, they call it. So meat that has been walking and not talking Which but until quite recently. <laughs> you went to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. We're going to find out about both, about the repeating of the chilies. <laughs> yes. Yes, we're looking forward to that bit. So let us, let us move on to Santos. One of the things that really interested me was about that period of time for you. So because it always seems to be this strange thing, doesn't it? Because you have those who've been there right from the start, as you said, as a rifleman have come through, and then you come in as a, as a first lieutenant. So when, when you leave Sandhurst, if you're successful, you leave as a, a second lieutenant, a second lieutenant, which is the sort of lowest officer rank. Okay. Yes, you are the lowest of the low, really. And <laughs> it's, you're very fresh and green, and everybody realises that when you leave Sandhurst. I guess it's a bit like passing your driving tests that you know all of the fundamentals, but you only really become good once you've had a bit of experience. Um, so it's a very, very steep learning curve. Well, Sandhurst is a very steep learning curve. And then when you join your regiment and you realise that all that you've been told at Sandhurst is, is correct, but there are nuances, but it's fantastic. You're challenged every day and it keeps you on your toes. So, so Sandhurst, so you came out of Santa's, and obviously your duties were, were f- wild and uh, wide and free. But I think one of the areas that we all know about is Afghanistan, which happened fairly soon after the 9-11 situation. And you spent some time out there, didn't you, with, with your regiment? And were you based at Kandahar Airport? Yes. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about that? Because we see it on the news, Adam, but it's such a sort of, not sterilised, we only see a tiny, minute part. I mean, what what was it like being out there during the action with your regiment? Ah, crikey. It's very hard to sum up. And like I said to you earlier, stop me if I ramble, but I actually went to Afghanistan with the other battalion. There were two battalions in the Gurkha Rifles. I joined the second battalion but I went out to Afghanistan with the 1st Battalion, who were based in Brunei at the time. Uh, so I flew out to Brunei to meet them and to meet my platoon, which in itself was a massive um, experience. So I think it was 28, and 28 you were in charge platoon sergeant. Yes, I was in charge. And we had some pre-deployment training, which was a good opportunity to you know, try and get to know these guys who would be shoulder-to-shoulder fighting together in, in Afghanistan. And then we, we had a chartered flight. It was an R, well, no, it's an RAF flight from Brunei out to Afghanistan to Kandahar. And it's bizarre because the RAF planes are a bit like a bad budget airline. <laughs> you, you get a certain amount. So, so it still feels like you're on a, on a, an easy jet flight, say, until you get over Afghanistan and you have to start putting body armor on and a helmet before you start come in for the approach for landing in Kandahar because the danger of surface to air missiles and the aircraft started doing all these maneuvers evasive maneuvers before we landed so from that moment you really knew you were in a theater of war and it's quite serious and then landing in Kandahar it was a massive base and occupied by I don't know how many but a lot of NATO countries had troops there um, predominantly American though, and a, a large British contingent as well. A massive setup, and 
very easy to forget that you're in the middle of Afghanistan because it had, um, you know, there was a McDonald's and a Timmy Hortons in the middle of it. But then to bring you back to Earth, you know, almost on a daily basis, we would be rocketed or mortared from outside of the camp by Taliban who would basically take pot shots at us. And then the sirens would go off and we'd have to find the nearest cover. So, so yes, it was in at the deep end very much. Was it frightening, do you remember? There was a lot of anxiety at times. And I'd say for me, the chief anxiety was of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, because we were traveling around the country a lot. Our job was force protection and taking VIPs around southern Afghanistan, all over southern Afghanistan. And we drove these vehicles, which were not well protected at all. They had a bit of armor on the side, so would protect you from a bullet. But the devices the Taliban were placing in the roads were enormously powerful and the evidence was everywhere. Um, and on a daily basis, there would be casualties. And so that was always at the back of my mind and being responsible for all of these guys who are in my platoon and to know that if I made a bad decision about which direction we go or I didn't adequately check a, a river crossing to make sure there were no IEDs, that was always at the back of my mind. So yes, on tenterhooks a lot of the time, but also it's true to say that a lot of the time it was quite mundane. And so interspersed between the operations and the excitement was a lot of downtime, um, which sort of brought its own challenges of trying to keep everybody focused and occupied and also and ready to go at a moment's notice. So yes, it was an amazing experience. How long were you out there for? It was just over six months. Okay, so, so it's quite it was a long time. Quite a long time. And then there was a lot of build-up prior to that. So, mm. How old were you then? Oh, my goodness me. I was about 25 or 26, I guess. Yeah, okay. I think. So it's a lot of responsibility. It, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. And you are put into these situations where you have very great responsibility and a decision you make can have huge implications but that's why you join it's to, to do these things and to have these responsibilities so you're really doing the job you trained for but it's something else when you're doing it for real and yeah. you know it has very real implications if you get I've it I've always forgotten what it is but there's a there's a saying in the military about all best laid plans yes I can't remember what um, I'll have to look it up. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, absolutely true. And yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's true with any situation that you plan for. In dark times, and, uh, and you were in a very dangerous place, I realise, with a lot of responsibility, there, were, there was also sort of humour in it as well. I mean, we referred earlier on, didn't we, to the Gurkha regiment, or Gurkhas generally do like their food. And you, you were telling me uh, a couple of incidents, actually, but there was one incident, you were saying that you go down these roads and you've got sniper fire and you've got IUDs everywhere. So keeping everybody safe in the truck, I imagine, is right up there with your number one concern. But you did have an incident, did you not, with some very hot chilli toast <laughs> one yes. night before you went out on a special mission? Yes, not not personal experience, thankfully. Yes, my platoon sergeant, his, uh, his name was Sergeant Gitterjang, and he was a lovely chap. One of the sort of great morale boosters being out there was we were able to receive care packages from sort of friends and family. So Gitterjang had received this package from Nepal 
um, from, I, I don't know, his family. And it contained this very hot chutney. And I mean, as I say, Gurkhas like hot food, but I think this was off the scale. And he had brought it on this operation that we were taking part in, which was to clear Taliban out of this valley in a very sort of remote area, mountainous area. And the day before, when we had been moving into position and we had come under fire, so we knew it was occupied enemy territory. And <laughs> that, that evening, um, Sergeant Gitterjang, um, to spice up his rations, obviously had some of this chutney. And um, the results only became apparent the next day when we <laughs> when we went to set off and our convoy, it wasn't just us actually, we were in convoy with some French-Canadian troops. I had a call on my radio from Sergeant Gitterjang saying, Saab, Saab, we must stop, we must stop now, uh, with no explanation as to why we must stop. So, so we halted this whole convoy and I just saw Sergeant Gitterjang scooting out of the back of his truck and behind the nearest big boulder and he was dealing with the consequences of this very hot chili in the middle of the Taliban. In a really territory. dangerous situation. And sniper fly. Yeah. But doesn't it just show when you have to go... You have to go. You have to go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's putting quite a lot of other people at risk as well. I love that story. I yeah. love that story. And you also would say that often on operations you would collect livestock, which might add to a good curry in the evening. Yes, that was very naughty. So in Kandahar, when we were back at base there was no livestock and the Gurkhas do like to make their curries fresh. So we did conduct a few patrols with um, half-manned vehicles into Kandahar city and it's fortunate that the Gurkhas speak Hindi or understand Hindi and a lot of the locals in Afghanistan speak Hindi because of Bollywood so they were able to converse quite well with the locals and were able to procure a certain number of chickens so we, we had this live chickens live chickens yes sorry so, so we had to get these chickens into our trucks and uh, so with one top gunner and a driver and a lot of chickens in each truck we <laughs> returned to Kandahar and very sort of unsuspiciously went past the checkpoints on the gates because they wouldn't have let us in if they'd known we had these well, chickens did you have to hide them under the seats yeah we, I mean it was, it was quite it wasn't too difficult because there's an armoured vehicle with no windows or anything so you could sort of <laughs> Keep them in the pack. It's a good thing you didn't have my cockerel Gordon. Yeah, that he would have given the game he away was, for sure. He wasn't built for military. <laughs> no. no. Oh, I love that. I love that. And wasn't there another time you said that you were loading? You were all loading onto a, some aircraft, and you, a lot of your platoon had quite a lot of food with them, and they were told they couldn't get on because it, it was too heavy a load. Yes, yes. This is another instance of. Nepali culture meets the unbending rules of the British Army. But before we left for Afghanistan from Brunei, the loadmaster on the RAF plane told us that there's under no circumstances could we take any food in our Bergens onto the aircraft. But the, the guys in the battalion had prepared for being away for so long by packing an awful lot of mainly dried noodles and dried fish into their Bergens. And they were told they couldn't take these with them, but there was no way that they were going to be throwing these into the bins. So I just have this mental image of, I don't know, it must have been sort of 90 or 100 guys in the company sat on their Bergens on the side of the runway in the heat of Brunei, munching their way through kilograms of 
dried noodles and dried fish. Because they weren't going to leave it. <laughs> There's <was> no way. <laughs> That. Yeah. Well, that's great because they don't want to waste food. No, right? no. You know, in any situation. Well, no, actually, on a serious note, that yes, that, that is. It's a bit like our sort of yeah. post-war mentality of waste not, want not. Yeah, and I think that meant. endures, yes, and make doing meant, and that endures in Nepali culture. Because I say it's a very poor country. Just what we're talking about in Nepali culture, there's two things that I would love to talk about. One is the the... The national weaponry, which is a cookery, which is a knife that you're going to talk to me briefly about in a minute. But also, when I came in, you said, oh, Tiki, look at this, look at this. And of course, I can't see very much. And I wasn't sure what I was looking at. But when my eyes, my left eye, which has got little in it, I saw a sort of wormy thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a wormy thing, which was a caterpillar, with, which had something sticking out of its head. Yes. Now, this isn't necessarily anything to do with the Gurkha military side, but it is something to do with sort of, is it to do with sort of manliness? Uh, well, yes, yes. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I, I had to learn Nepali, and I, I learned it to a certain level. But throughout my career, there were occasions where I was really doubting what I was being told, uh, or if I, my Nepali wasn't really strong enough to understand what I was being told. And when I was based in Nepal, I was lucky enough to organise a, a trek over the Annapurnas. And I was being told by the porters that I, because I'd asked, there were these guys at very high altitude and they were sort of circling around in the, the heathery sort of tundra and I, I wanted to know what they were doing. They were saying that they were looking for a caterpillar that turned into a, into a plant and this seemed really bizarre. I couldn't quite work this out. And they were also, this was where my Nepali, I felt, was letting me down, was saying it was an aphrodisiac. And I didn't know the word for aphrodisiac, so, you know, it was, you do the best with the vocabulary you have. Um, and anyway, it, it transpired that they were calling this caterpillar Yassi Gumba. Um, and that's, I don't know what it's called in English or what its scientific name is, but it's a caterpillar that's infected with a fungus. And this fungus causes the caterpillar to die, and then the, cat, the caterpillar sprouts a fruiting fungus, looks like head. a little tree out of its head. And this is considered to be a great delicacy, and people go to great lengths to collect these things. But yes, I, I, I bought one, and I have to say, I have not you've eaten never, it. Well, you've never <laughs> eaten it, Adam, because your virility <laughs> is evident. I did have a hundred, I've only got one left now. <laughs> But let's just talk about the knife before we go on to your now life. Now, tell us, this is um, spelt K-U-K-R-I, I believe. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a tool that the Gurkhas, or rather Nepalese, use yes. pretty well on a daily basis. But it's also part of the national uniform, is that correct? Yes. And it's a fairly deadly weapon. And it seems to me that it's infamous in the way that enemy troops had a fear of this knife of what it could couldn't do but also that you were saying to me on the phone the truth of it is really it's a a tool well it's both you're you're right so yes in Nepal it is used as a multi-purpose tool um so one of the I say myths um of, of the Gurkhas is that when a Gurkha draws their cookery, they, they cannot resheathe it without the cookery drawing blood so they have to cut themselves but actually Day to day, they're used for everything from chopping wood to preparing a chicken to whatever. But in the army, in the British army, in the Gurkhas, they are a fearsome weapon and they have contributed to the reputation of the Gurkhas. 
and there is an image, I, I'm sure if you say to anybody about the Gurkhas, of um, a Nepali man holding a kukri, and they have formed this reputation of beheading their enemies with a kukri. And, and there were some very notable occasions in Afghanistan where, I don't know the exact details, but where the cookery was actually used in, in combat with the Taliban. And we listened to what the Taliban were talking about. We had intelligence, so we could listen to their radio conversations. And we knew that when we arrived, they were chatting about the Gurkhas. They were worried that the Gurkhas had arrived because they had heard the um, stories and the reputation. Um, so it's a bit of a psychological advantage, but... Yeah, they know how to use them as well. So it's, it is a fearsome weapon. they thought they beheaded people with them, didn't they? Yes, yeah. And we didn't discourage that view either because it's, uh, not to say that happened, but a reputation is a useful thing to have in that circumstance. But yes, it, it is a, it's a tool, but, but, but also a very formidable weapon. You showed it to me earlier. I definitely won't have one. <laughs> I think I'm better sticking just with my pen knife. Yes, Swiss Army knife. <laughs> oh, Adam, they're so lovely. I just I think we're all now thinking, right, my next holiday destination is Nepal. Oh, my goodness, yes. I, I would say a hundred times yes. It's yeah. the most amazing country, and the people are so friendly. I say it's a very poor country, and yet, yeah, it's it's so friendly, and the scenery is stunning, and such a mixture of cultures and people and uh, yeah I thoroughly recommend a trip to Nepal. And respect, I like the idea of the respect. Mm. So we move on now to close to home and also about the stage of life that you're you're moving into now. So you left the military after four years which is which is the earliest that you can leave if you wish to because I know you're keen to get married and have a family and you have two children don't you, local schools here and but one of the things that you had always loved was trees. So what was what was the transition? And, and can we use the word that I've been dying to use all week, which is arborist? <laughs> yeah. It's not a word I've used before, but I shall use it now forever. Yes. It's, so it's, tell it's, us it's, about that part of your life. So it's, as, as you said, I've always had this interest. I was brought up in the countryside and spent my childhood when I wasn't playing soldiers, climbing trees and making tree houses. So I was keen to do something along those lines. And I left the army sooner to allow myself time to be able to do something different. Um, so I quite naturally fell into tree surgery. I started off doing a few strimming jobs with a strimmer that my wife kindly bought me as a birthday present <laughs> and then gradually built up from there. So I earned a bit of money and bought a chainsaw and did my qualifications, practical yes, qualifications. Yes, because to have a chainsaw you've got a there's certain qualifications you have to have. Oh, uh, yeah, there are so many qualifications. Um, there are the practical chainsaw qualifications. Which is wear very solid trousers. Yes, yes. They don't make chainsaw shorts, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> and climbing qualifications. And, and then also there's the theoretical side, and there's so much to learn about trees and plants. And yeah, continually learning. I'm quite fascinated, and I, I still need to read the book about the relationships about fungi and trees, I think there's a lot we just don't know. You now have a lovely plot of land up on, up on top of the Mendip, and you're doing all sorts of interesting conservation things with those, including stone, you'll replace the stone wall, and you planted trees, and, and you're thinking about possibly having some livestock. So 
how is that in a life-changing situation? Oh, it's... I've seen you up there. <laughs> yes, I know. And you never look happier than just sort of <laughs> sitting up there uh, on the land. Yeah. Absolutely. I just, having had this very sort of vagrant lifestyle in the army of moving from one place to another, it's so nice to be in Draycott and to be putting, you know, to use a tree analogy, putting roots down. And the Mendip Hills, uh, I just love it. It's quite interesting listening to some of your A and B guys on previous podcasts talking about conservation on the Mendips and that really interests me and my wife. We want to do the right thing. We're very lucky to have that bit of land. So yes, we want to graze it in a conservation way. It's really fun having livestock. It's very satisfying learning stone walling, although I've noticed yesterday a bit of my stone walling has collapsed, so I need to <laughs> need to improve. <laughs> but it's all a learning process. But yes. It just brings great joy spending time up there and that view across the levels and uh, it's, it's very peaceful up there and, yeah, I just love it. Absolutely love I asked it. you once, I said, with your training in the military and with the Gurkhas, were any of those skills that you learned then applicable <laughs> to the work you did in the Mendips? And you said, the weather. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's probably the most applicable skill is being able to get on with it even when it's horizontal rain and freezing cold but yeah I think even then the hill has a lot to offer often you're the only person up there when it's like that so it's just stunning as you know you spend a lot of time up there well I'm always stumbling around there in the dark (laughs) having well the thing is because I know it so even though I've got lack of sight you know I know it so well I pretty well know every blade of grass certainly the dogs do if I don't yeah well it's just extraordinary stories we've heard this morning, Adam. And we're so grateful that you took the time to talk to us. I really hope that you return to Nepal again with your family. I know you've been there on a holiday, but I hope you go back there again. And I hope the spirit of everything you've learned carries you forward. And thank you for talking to us today. Thank you, Tiggy. That's really kind words. And it's been an absolute honour to talk to you. So thank you. <laughs> Well, I know where I'm headed with Jackie Dog. We are going in a straight direction now to the, yes, Jackie, we are, to the high Himalaya mountains to find some Yatagumba. I don't know that it's designed particularly for women, but however, it might give me extra stamina. So I'm going to go right now. <laughs> anyway, a few thank yous, as always, on Draco Diaries, because we are a voluntary team. And this week it's a very big thank you to Jeff Farney who recorded the programme and edited it. And I would like to just leave Adam Clark's contact numbers with his permission. He's a very good tree surgeon and apparently he does jobs big and small. And having seen his cookery knife, and I don't mean cookery in the sense of kitchen, but in the sense of Gurkha, I'm sure he's very, very good. So his mobile number is 07870982388 and his socials and websites are www.adamclark, one word without an E, dot arborist, arborist is A-B-O-R-I-S-T, dot co dot UK. So if you want to meet him or get some stuff done with your trees, that's the way to go. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you in about a month's time.